So uh, when you open up your Bibles there to Isaiah chapter 2, I want you to focus uh, on one word. So if you haven't done that already, the Pew Bibles in front of you is on page 567. Look down there at Isaiah chapter 2. Look at verse 5, and I want you to notice the first word in that uh, verse. You'll notice when you look down there, it's, that word is a single letter, O. And behind that single letter, I think we learn much of what is missing in so many of our lives. We might say, uh, wow, we might uh, sometimes, you know, exult in various good news and say good things. We might use words like cool or nice, or we might go to a July, July 4th explosion and think it's great and say some uh, word like yes or woohoo or whatever. But how often do we utter the word, oh? So often that word comes to us in response to something that's weighty or deep or full of wonder. See, friends, we're living in interesting times here in America. Here in America, we have everything that we need and most everything that we want. We lack for nothing, and yet we still want for more. We are among the most wealthy, most extravagant, most connected, most resourced people, quite literally, in the history of the world. And yet, as a result, on the whole, our society has increasingly been hollowed out, thinned. We lack depth and wonder. One observer has noticed that as a civilization advances, its sense of wonder declines. So where lightning and thunder used to be the voice of God, now we know it to be nothing more than hot and cold air coming together. It's all very explainable. Technological advances have rendered sunsets and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony as bit players on the scale of what is interesting and moving. Well, friends, I have a big goal for us this morning. By the grace of God and by the power of His Spirit, my goal is to get you to say, oh, in response to what we see in this passage. That you would respond with such a wonder as to what is here. You would say, oh, oh, Israel, oh, Faith Bible Church, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's a big goal. Let me introduce for us this passage. Again, I'm going to be in Isaiah 2, so let me introduce this by sort of going really wide about the Bible and kind of coming down to this passage to give us some context. The Bible we know to be the Word of God. It tells us the story of, of God and His world. The message of the Bible, quite simply, if I can put it in a sentence, is uh, God's King bringing in God's kingdom for God's everlasting glory and His people's everlasting good. It's the story of the Bible. God's king bringing in God's kingdom for the sake of God's everlasting glory and his people's everlasting good. And if you don't remember that one, just remember Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible's all about. You understand Jesus, you understand the whole Bible. And you understand the world by extension. The Bible is organized into two parts, the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament testifies to the promises of God's king and his coming kingdom. The New Testament testifies to the fulfillment of those promises. So you have in the Old Testament the promises made, New Testament promises kept. God made those promises to the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, later known to be the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And those people were given not only those promises, they were given a place of Canaan, the promised land. He gave them His presence in the temple. We'll talk about that more in a bit. And He gave them prophets to warn them and guide them towards those promises of peace. The problem was, like Adam and Eve before them, God's people did not love Him by obeying Him. 
even though they were given all of these wonderful gifts. And yet God knew that from the very beginning. You can go read that in Moses' words at the end of Deuteronomy, which leads us into the book of Isaiah. You can see there from chapter 2, verse 1, Isaiah is a prophet that is speaking to God's people who had been living in Jerusalem, which is the capital of God's place, uh, and Judah, which is a region for many years. They'd been living here for many years, so now we're well beyond the exodus and things of the like. The people had been in this place for many years. Isaiah is prophesying around the year 700 B.C., that's 700 years before Christ shows up. And the main message of the book of Isaiah can be encapsulated into three words, judgment, hope, and glory. Judgment, hope, and glory. God is bringing judgment on Israel for its failure to love God by obeying Him. And yet in that judgment, He provides hope for those that repent, and that hope will then lead to an everlasting glory, judgment, hope, and glory. In Isaiah 1, verse 2, going back to set the context, now we're getting closer to chapter 2. In Isaiah 1, verse 2, we see that Israel is like children who were reared to love God, but they have grown to rebel against Him. We find in verse 4 of chapter 1 that they are described as a sinful nation laden with iniquity. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They're described as a body that is entirely sick. And so as a result, in verse 7 of chapter 1, we see judgment. God has judged their city, their region, Jerusalem and Judah, because it currently, we see there, lies desolate, having been overcome by foreigners. In verse 18 of chapter 1, God promises, though, hope in the midst of that, that through their sins, though their sins be as crimson or red like crimson, they will be made white as snow. Which leads to chapter 1, verse 26, where we see the glory, the uh, glory of a new city, that they will be cleansed, uh, that they might come to live in this faithful city, this city of righteousness, which leads us to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, is describing that great city of hope, of that great city of glory. Uh, and so let me read that passage for us. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall say, come, and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Big idea for the sermon this morning, all the nations will find their peace in the supremacy of Christ. It's a big idea. If you get lost somewhere along the way, come back to that sentence. All the nations find their peace in the supremacy of Christ. Three points this morning. We'll spend most of our time on those first two. First one is this. Christ establishes the sight of the greatness of God among the nations. Christ establishes the sight of the greatness of God among the nations. So first off, look down there, chapter 2, verse 2. Notice the words latter days. Latter there means final or last or end days. Isaiah is saying that the prophecy he is giving us, 
will be realized in the final or the last days, which is to say the last days of the story of redemption. In other words, when these things come about, we know that the final chapter is near. We can think about previous days or previous ages in the story of redemption, the days of creation, the days of Noah, the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can think about the age of God's people, Israel, which Isaiah is prophesying in. But Isaiah is saying that another age or another kind of days is coming. And in those last days, those final days, something's going to happen. And what is it? We learn there in verse 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. Notice that it's the mountain. It's a particular mountain. It's not just any mountain. It's the mountain. And which mountain is it, you ask? Well, it's the mountain of the house of of the Lord. Why is the establishment of some mountain so important, you might ask? Well, throughout the Bible, friends, mountains are consistently represented as the place where God meets with man. Sort of like God's coming down and man's going up and meeting in between in the air. Sort of like mountains are oftentimes like heaven and earth colliding together. So when you look through the storyline of the Bible, almost all the important events of the Bible are occurring on a mountain. So we can think about the beginning. Ezekiel 28 tells us that Eden, the Garden of Eden, was on a mountain where God and man are dwelling together. We can think about Moses meeting with God on Mount Sinai, receiving the law. We can think about the temple, which is in Jerusalem, was built on the Temple Mount where the presence of God resided. And of course, we know of Jesus' great kingdom edict in the New Testament, the Sermon on the what? Mount, right? Uh, Jesus both appoints and commissions His disciples on a mountain. And of course, we know Uh, The Mount of Transfiguration. How could we forget that? Where the glory of Christ is revealed in the face of Moses and Elijah representing the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, in the presence of Peter, James, and John who will go on to be New Testament authors. The glory of Christ is revealed there on that mountain. So for Isaiah to reference that in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established as the highest mountain. He's making reference to a cataclysmic shift in the pattern of God's redemption. Here's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying that the special relationship God had in speaking and living with Israel was going away, and a new day was coming. A day in which the mountain of God would no longer be limited to Israel. He was going to make it rise so high that all the nations could see Him and flow up to Him. Jerusalem would no longer be the privileged son who could live in the house of the Lord on his own. He was going to raise up his home so as to receive sons and daughters of all nations. In these latter days, we find things are going to be different. See, friends, under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God dwelt in the temple, which was in Jerusalem in the region of Judah. And therefore, by God's sovereign grace, he chose to limit the height of his mountain to that region, the worship to that region. In other words, God had primarily revealed himself to his people, Israel, which lived, he lived there in the Middle East. That was the height of the mountain of the house of the Lord, as it were. But by his grace and for his glory, the Lord made himself known primarily to those people of Israel through his law by mediating his presence there in the temple. Gentile peoples or non-Jewish peoples were welcomed there. That was a preview of coming attractions. We can think about God's grace going to the Ninevites, the non-Jews in the Old Testament. But primarily the mountain of God, the city of God, was limited to that region, Jerusalem and Judah. It was only seen, as it were, by God's people, Israel. But now we find 
that the Lord is telling us that the mountain of the temple of the house of the Lord would be lifted up as the highest of mountains. It shall go above the hills, the text tells us. It is not, though, to be clear, though, it is not as though the Lord wasn't the highest and the best of all things before. It's just that now the Lord is going to raise up the mountain so high that it can be seen and populated no longer just by ethnic Israel. Now it's going to be so high, it's going to be seen and populated by the world, by the nations. Let me try and illustrate this for you. When you think of the Eiffel Tower, what is it you think of? Think of Paris, France, right? You think of sort of Frenchness, we might say. What if we were to say we were going to take the Eiffel Tower and we were going to lift it up as the symbol of the world? We would be trying to communicate, right, that sort of Frenchness is going to mark the world. We could do the same thing with the Statue of Liberty, right, a symbol of America. And if we were to say we're going to lift up the Statue of Liberty as the highest thing to represent the world, we would be saying Americanness, God forbid, was going to be taken over the whole world. And so by the prophet Isaiah saying that the mountain is being lifted up as the highest mountain, he's saying now Israel's God, the only God, the one true and living God, is now being lifted up to the nations. That's what the Lord is promising to do in the final days. No longer will the manifest glory of the Lord be limited to the ethnic people of Judah in the final days. It's going to be the highest. It's going to be global worship because God is a global God that made the world for Himself. All the other hills and mountains, which is to say all the other false gods and false places of worship will be diminished as the glory of the Lord is lifted up above them so as to expose Himself as the highest and the best of all things. As He makes Himself known to the Gentiles or the non-Jews, He was going to graciously invite the nations to come and live with Him in worship up on the mountain. But also, look there in verse 2. Did you notice the verb, the first verb that's used there? You should underline that. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established and all the nations will flow to it. In other words, this time the mountain is not going anywhere. It's fixed. It's going to stay there. There's nothing you can do about it. And so those of you that are familiar with the story of redemption, that are story of the Bible, those of you that are familiar with that story, this idea should not be new to you. It should be quite familiar. We can think about the story of Genesis, which your, our brother Justin will preach to you not, to, not too long from now, where God creates mankind in His own image, male and female. He created them in His image, and He told them to be fruitful and to multiply and do what? Fill the earth, right? Fill the world with people that image me. Of course, we know sin enters into the world. God creates a special relationship with Noah. He gets off the boat. What does He tell Mo, uh, Noah when He steps off the boat? Same thing He told Adam. Be fruitful, multiply. They fail. Then there's the covenant with who? Abraham in Genesis 12. And it is said through the seed of Abraham, what? All the families of the earth will be blessed. God has always understood this to be the case. This has always been His plan to fix His mountain, His worship for all the nations. And so, friends, it should not surprise us when we turn the pages of the New Testament and we open up and who do we see but a child of David, a child of Abraham, who is Christ the Lord, who has come, as Simeon would tell us, to be a light to the nations. And it should not surprise us because of His faithful work in the cross and in the resurrection when He tells His disciples, again, on that mountain, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of these latter days, to the end of the age. It's all coming together. That's what the author, Matthew, wants you to understand, that the prophecy of Isaiah 2 is coming into fulfillment when Christ comes. Christ sealed or he established the mountain as a fixed reality for all the nations to stream up to. He established it with his blood and with the resurrection he makes a way for the Jews first, but also the Gentiles, the nations. Jesus has raised up the mountain. He has made it possible for the nations who once were far off to now come near and flow up the mountain. And of course, this is a major theme in the New Testament, isn't it? Take the Apostle Paul, for instance, a dominant voice in the New Testament, also referred to himself as a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. Listen to to him as he writes to a Gentile church, a church like this one in Colossae. After rehearsing the preeminence of Christ in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, Paul then says in verse 25 to 27, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles, the nations, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is that mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. We could look at his letter to Romans, the ending of Romans, another Gentile church. Look at the end. These are the final words of Romans. That strengthen you accord book in Romans 16, 25 to 27. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings. What are those prophetic writings? Isaiah, among others, has been made known to who? All nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The light of the glory of God was sort of hidden in the valley of a small village, as it were. And all the rest of us lived in darkness, and we did not know God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent the light of the world, Christ the Lord, to make a way for us to live forever in the kingdom of light, even though we all deserve so let me pause and offer us two applications. First, friends, if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for your righteousness or your holiness, or if you believe that Christ is one way to the top of the mountain with God, then, friend, allow me to extend the candle to you. From this passage, we can see that the God of the Bible is the only one that is worthy of eternal praise and worship. He is, as it says here, the highest of the mountains. He is above the hills of all other gods. And so, friend, if you despise him, reject him, or consider his worth as the same of other mountains, other gods, then, friend, you choose to live in darkness. The invitation for you, friend, is right there in verse 5. Oh, come, walk in the light of the Lord. He is revealing to you, friend, right now, in this very moment, That the way to the city of God where everlasting peace or joy are found, they are found in Christ alone. Take the light of Christ, turn from your darkness, 
Don't entrust yourself to anything or anyone but Him as the highest and best of all things. All else is below Him. He's the one you were made to live for. So trust Him and worship Him alone. And if you have questions about that, I would hope that you would ask maybe the neighbor that brought you. You can come and talk to me. Talk to anybody you've seen up here. Talk to someone about this before you leave. But also, secondly, for you, Faith Bible Church, are you walking in the light of the Lord's grace by worshiping the Lord as the highest and the best of all things? Or are you worshiping at other hills and mountains? Friends, your life together as a church depends on you, the covenant members of this church, how you answer those questions. These last days, friends, are often referred to as a present evil age. And one of the best games of the evil one is to get confessing worship to worship, confessing Christians to worship at other hills and mountains so as to distract them from the reality of the infinite worth of God. No job. You need to know this clearly, friends. No job, no income, no relationship, no house, no car, no trip, no experience. Nothing is of greater worth than Christ. Serve at your jobs. Provide for your family. Enjoy the many good gifts that God gives us in the world. But never forget that there is no higher mountain than the Lord. There is nothing and no one better than Him. So do everything in your power, Faith Bible Church. Do everything in your power to walk in the light of the Lord by making it clear to yourselves, to one another, and to this community that God has no rivals. He's done everything to make that clear in these last days. And so in word and deed, walk in the light of the Lord by living and loving as though Christ really was the highest and the best of all things among the nations. Treasure the supremacy of Christ. He has established the greatness of God among the nations. And secondly, we see Christ teaches the greatness of God to the nations. Christ teaches the greatness of God to the nations. See, as Christ is lifted up on the cross, He not only lifts up the mountain of the house of the Lord as the highest of all other mountains, establishing the worship of the nations, In order to orient that worship, Christ also teaches the nations how to walk inside the infinite worth of God. He establishes and Christ teaches the nations about the infinite work of God. Look at verse 3. You can see it there. Isaiah says, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He, who's the He there? The God of Jacob. That He may teach us His ways we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the mountain of the house of the Lord is lifted up so that the nations can flow up to it. And as this happens, we learn that many peoples, meaning the nations, will flow up there to be taught. They will go up there, they will come up and say, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. You should be asking why. Why do they want to go up there? Well, the text tells us They want to go up there so that the God of Jacob may teach the nations his ways. Your your response should be, that. well, why do they want to learn his ways? Well, the text tells us, so that they, so that we may walk in his paths. So that the nations may learn to walk in a way that magnifies the infinite worth of the one true God. And so I ask you, friends, can can you think of anyone 
that taught others the ways of God as though he were God himself. Anybody know who that might be? Is this not Christ? Was he not crucified for this very purpose? This is Christ. This is pointing us to Christ. We learn time and again that people were astonished at Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one, what? That had authority, not like the other scribes. We can recall that while the prophets of old would say, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, thus truly, truly do I say to you. Here, Isaiah is making the ministry of Christ more clear for us. Not only will Christ establish or fix the worship of the one true God among the nations in the latter days, we learn in verse 3 that the nations will get an up-close and personal discipleship lesson. How about that? By the way, wouldn't it be great to have been there in that Luke 24 passage, the greatest Bible study in the history of the world, I call it, right? He's opening up the law of the prophets and the writings, just working through them, and there I am, 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 right? So great. Jesus went town to town teaching the word of God as though he were God himself. We see in Mark 1, 38, he even claims to have come to teach. But did you notice there's something curious about the teaching of Christ in reference to this passage? Did you notice, you can think back about this, when you read through the Gospels, it's mostly limited to Jews. You can think about the story of the Syrophoenician woman, right? A non-Jew, she asks about the Lord, and the Lord is a bit curt with her, isn't he? Got to go to the dog, we're not going to feed anything to you dogs. This passage, though, is referencing the teaching of God to the nation. So what gives? Well, this, friends, directs us into Jesus' teaching about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that would be later referred to as the Spirit of what? Spirit of Christ. Jesus tells His Jewish disciples that He eventually is going to go away, but He is going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. And listen to how Jesus describes the sort of job description of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 14. Jesus says in John 16, 14, referencing the Spirit, He will glorify me. For, because He will take what is mine, Jesus's, and declare it to you. He will glorify Christ, take what is Christ, and declare it to you. We even find early in John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father, this is Jesus talking, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He, note it's a He, it's not an it, He will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said or all that I have taught you. What's the ministry of the, Lord, of the Holy Spirit? Quite simply, to glorify Christ and to teach Christ to the nations. That's His job. And He gladly does it. And of course, it is after Jesus' resurrection that he tells those very same disciples, stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave. Wait for the power of the Spirit to come. And when the Spirit of Christ comes that will glorify Christ, that will teach Christ, then you are to go where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. All nations. And we find in that passage, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts just reads like a commentary on verse 3 of chapter 2 of Isaiah. Where does the law go out from? Where does the gospel go out from? Just as it says in Isaiah 2, verse 3, from Jerusalem. And so friends, in these final days, not only does Jesus raise up the mountain of the house of the Lord so as to give us, the nation, sight of the reality of the one true and living God, that He has no rival, 
But also God the Father sends God the Son, Jesus, to teach the Jews Himself in the Incarnation. And then after securing that salvation, God the Son teaches the nations Himself through God the Spirit of Christ. Exactly as Isaiah predicted it 700 years before it came to happen. So therefore, friends, if that is right, and I believe it is, Christ is teaching you right now. Not Nathan. Insofar as I am properly feeding you the Word of Christ, Christ, through the Spirit, through the power of His Word, is teaching you. See, as the Word of God is properly taught, people respond not to the preacher, but to Christ as He teaches them through His Word in the power of the Spirit. For those of us that have repented and believed, that's what's happened to us. That's what has been happening for the last 2,000 years in the history of the church. All of us were by nature flowing away from that mountain. But but God in His infinite grace chose us, right? We heard that word, the word of Christ, the voice of Christ, and the power of His word spoken in the gospel. And what does He do? He turns us around from flowing away from that mountain and He lifts us up to the top of it by the power of the Spirit of Christ. As the word is properly taught, that can only happen by the power of the Spirit, right? Spirit of Christ, as we testify to Him, as we glorify Him. And not only, friends, is this happening here in Naples, not only is this happening, the Word of Christ going out and the nations believing, being taught by Christ, worshiping Christ, not only is that happening here in America, that's happening in Bulgaria, that's happening in China, that's happening in Canada, that's happening in Venezuela, that's happening in northern Iraq, it's happening in Kenya, in Morocco, it's happening everywhere. See, what Isaiah is prophesying some 700 years in advance is that in the last days, the nations will have something better than the Jews of old. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. They will not have to be reliant upon prophets to come and speak the word of the Lord. God was going to come down Himself and teach us. And through the ministry of the Word in this power of the Spirit, as we glorify Christ and are faithful to it, Jesus teaches and changes us and leads us up the mountain. This is exactly what Hebrews says in Hebrews 1. Listen to this. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, same language as Isaiah 2, in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe. How? By the Word. By the Word of His power. And so, friends, the Spirit of Christ now uses the Word of Christ to bring about followers of Christ among the nations that live up on the mountain of Christ, highest of all the mountain. And so what is the application for you, brothers and sisters? If Christ has established the greatness of the He has, and if through the proper teaching of that Word that glorifies Christ and teaches Christ, and that causes people to flow up the mountain to Him, if that is true, and it is, then what is left for us than to declare that Word to the nations? To show them where the river of grace is. To testify to the greatness of the glory of Christ. To testify that there is a way for we, wretched sinners, to go up the mountain. 
Isaiah says that in the last days, our days, these days, many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord that he may teach us his ways. So brothers and sisters, place many people in the flowing rivers of God's word that by the Spirit, Jesus might teach them his ways. Christ has made a way for the nations to flow up to his house. And it says right there in verse 2, all the nations shall flow to it. You have a promise. What else do you need? Open up the Bible and show them Jesus. It will be your mouth, but it will be Jesus' words, beloved. Have confidence. Have confidence. Insofar as you teach them the word of Christ, it is he that wills and works in you for his good pleasure in the person's life that you're teaching. And you can have great Uh, confidence, not only because you have a promise, but also the Spirit of Christ, Christ Himself, through that Spirit, is going to bring it about. How else do rivers flow up mountains? Right? Did you guys hear about that mountain in the Amazon where they found that the water's flowing up the mountain? Did y'all hear about that? No, of course not. It doesn't exist. Right? No. Waters only go down. It only takes supernatural nature to go up a mountain. And so as you teach the Word, the Word of Christ, then God, by the power of His Spirit, will lead them up. Your confidence is in Him. Take them to the river. Show them Jesus. You have been taught by Jesus Himself. You teach others Jesus. You know the way. You know the truth. You know the life. So show them the rivers of grace that flow to Jesus by teaching them Jesus. And He promises to be with you. Might you be rejected? Yes. Might you be made fun of? Yes. Might you lose your job? Yes. Might you lose your life? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Also to himself, Christ has made a way for all the nations to stream up to him. And if it cost him so much, why should it not cost us any less? Have you found his ways, friends, to be full of light and the world's ways to be full of darkness? Well, friend, tell others about that. Show them the light and trust Christ to teach them. You don't trust yourself. Think about this, guys. When I come up here, My confidence is not in my ability to change you. My confidence is in the Word of Christ and the power of His Spirit to bring about His obedience. It's not my confidence. It's not in me. That gives me all the kinds of confidence to stand up in front of you and trust something's going to happen today. Because I trust Him. I don't trust myself. So in the same way you, when you're in your bedrooms or in your coffee shops or in your hallways, at the office, wherever it is, just open up the Word. Trust Christ. Don't trust yourself. Don't think you have to know all the words of the Bible and all the apologetic reasons and things of the like. Gosh, my, my church back in D.C., they're so, they, man, they're all about this. We've got to know all the answers. No, just tell them about Jesus. Tell them what He's done. And trust God to bring them up to the final place, that mountain. Christ has established the site of the greatness of God among the nations. Christ teaches the nations to walk in the infinite worth of God in these latter days. And finally, thirdly, Christ brings the peace of the greatness of God to the nations. He brings the peace of the greatness of God to the nations. Look at verse 4. He, 
that is the Lord, the God of Jacob, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. See, friends, verse 4 is the fruit of all that Christ has done before it. Since through the cross of Christ, He has established the God of Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob is the highest, the only God, since He has taught and is teaching those nations His way, then in these latter days, Christ is bringing a people from every nation up to the mountain of the house of the Lord to have peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace with a world that is groaning under the weight of its own sin. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, has and will settle the disputes of the nations, causing them to put down swords and spears that take life and then bend them into things that will give life. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does. As the preeminent king, he uses his preeminent power to take those things that promote pain and turn them into vessels of peace. That's exactly what Christ did on the cross. The cross was a sword that he turned into a plowshare. That's what he did with death. Death was a spear that he turned into a pruning hook by resurrecting from the grave. Christ takes the broken things of this world and he makes them whole again. He makes what? All things new. He will do it to the whole world. He's already doing it. Heaven is breaking in. It has broken in. And He will bring it about. He will bring about one people among the nations for His glory and for His people's good. Take hope in that, guys. Have hope in that. The United Nations, friends, cannot fulfill its job. That body has more knowledge and more power and more potential for peace than any governing body has ever known, and yet the world spins out of control. They have no ability to bring about worldwide peace than an ant. Than we have been. We have more access to information and education than we have ever had, and yet we still cannot figure out how a peregrine falcon flies 200 miles an hour. We have engineered driverless cars. We've created computers so small that they can fit in our pockets with more sophistication than the brightest minds of a century ago could have ever dreamed or imagined. We've learned how to fine-tune a body with diet and exercise so as to produce the greatest athletes in the history of the world. But no one can figure out how to stop divorce. No one can figure out how to stop depression. No one has figured out how to stop racism, abortion. No one has figured out how to stop abuse, mass shootings, or wars that lead to the death of millions of sons and daughters. Apple will not be able to accomplish that. And friends, I've even followed Jesus for some 20 plus years, and Christ has healed me. He's given me peace. I'm better off than I was when I first began. But even I do not love him as he deserves. I don't love my wife and my sons as they deserve. I haven't loved you as you have deserved. Though politicians and technological giants promise a new world, 
The world never really seems to change. And yet it does. You just have to know where to look, friends. You have to know where to look. What a joy it's been to talk to so many of you. You want to know where heaven is breaking in? You want to know where peace, where Christ is settling disputes and bringing in healing and oneness? Go and talk to Cullen, who has been here when this church began 30 years ago. Ask him what God has done in the last three decades. Let him tell you. He'll tell you all about the peace of Christ, him settling disputes. Ask them what it was like to grow up in the home that they grew up in versus the home that they now support now. Ask them what that's like, how peace of Christ is now ruling. Go talk to Justin and Tanya Harris, who grew up in a Christian home. Ask them how their understanding of grace has grown in the last decade. You want to know where peace is found, the ruling of Christ, the unity of a people. It's all around you, friend. You just have to know where to look and who to ask. The mountain of the house of the Lord is established. Jesus is teaching the nations that are here in your midst, and He is bringing peace. Wherever we find a gospel-loving church, we find stories of grace, where swords have been beaten into plowshares and spears are changed to pruning hooks. He's done that with you, beloved. He's done that with us in Washington, D.C. at Restoration Church. CNN, the New York Times are not interested in it. But the greatness of the glory of God is breaking in. And He is. He has done it a thousand times over in little churches all over the world where the peace of Christ, the healing of the nations, is starting to form more and more and more and more. It's happening in the jungles of Brazil. It's happening in the deserts of Africa. It's happening on the plains of Nineveh in northern Iraq. I know because I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so have many of you. You prayed for it this morning from their brothers and sisters down in Honduras. It's happening. Keep in mind that the, uh, the, the machinations of the world are not interested in that news. The center of the work of the gospel, friends, is no longer northern and western. It's now southern and centralized. It's happening and spreading all over the earth. God is doing amazing things in these last days. He is bringing about peace for His glory. And soon enough, these last days will turn into the final day. When Christ will return and finish it off. The fullness of peace. Revelation 21 says that heaven will come down to earth. And Jesus will have exactly what he prayed for. God's name would be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. The church will be one great assembly, and there in that assembly will be a people from all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all languages. And they will cry out, we will cry out in the one great assembly to Christ the Lord and say, worthy are you, worthy to take away our sin, to receive power and glory and dominion and honor forever and ever and ever and ever. And we will do it with Kenyan brothers and sisters and we will do it with people from all over the world. And it will be great and we will have peace and there will be nothing but life, no more death. Scripture tells us that there will be no death, no tears, none of it. Death shall be no more as Christ settles the disputes and we will live in peace with God and one another forever. Oh, faith, Bible church, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in His ways. Know His peace. Speak of it to others. Invite people up the mountain.
God's king has come. His kingdom is breaking in. And soon enough, maybe by the end of this sermon, he will come. And it will be great. That's worth living for. So may we. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the pain and suffering that you, that Jesus, you have taught us and are teaching us to walk in your ways. We pray for the, and thank you for the peace that we've already enjoyed. Oh God, finish it off. Christ return today. If not today, tomorrow, but soon. And may you be magnified as one great assembly for the glory of Christ and the good of your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.